0: for Jeff Merrick's Random Hockey Fact of the Day. So we um spent a good portion of the first hour talking about the Winnipeg Jets and their situation on and off the ice. On, off the ice, and in the stands. Where they're having a certain attendance issue. This will come up with Greg Wyshynski from ESPN in a couple of moments. So I thought maybe to kick off Hour 2... We talk about the greatest Winnipeg Jet of them all, the great Dale Howardchuck. So here's something interesting about Dale Howardchuck growing up. Like many kids around the world, grew up dreaming of playing in the NHL and winning the Stanley Cup and would shoot pucks relentlessly often um, in his driveway. Uh, But Howardchuck had a very specific way of shooting pucks. Howardchuck just wouldn't stand there and blast away on his shooting pad. Dale Howardchuck would shoot pucks blindfolded. I'll get to his Barry Colts here in a couple of seconds. He would shoot pucks blindfolded. He would just look at the net, put on a blindfold and start firing away. Knowing that in the NHL, you don't get a chance to have a clean look for very long. And he would tell you that he honed his other senses to the point where he could tell the difference between the sound of a puck hitting a crossbar and the puck hitting a post. That's how finely tuned he was. And if you talk to, whether it's Tanner Pearson or Mark Shifley or Andrew Mangiapane, any other forwards from the very Colts team that he coached, it wasn't that he used blindfolds. There's a certain danger involved in that. But he would, I remember Tanner Pearson telling me the story. He would often have Tanner Pearson shoot with his eyes closed for the same reasons. You don't get a long time to have a long look at a net. When you're playing in the NHL, you will in junior, but that time is going to close quickly when you join the National Hockey League. Close your eyes and shoot, learning how to shoot instinctively by the late, great Dale Chuck. A good Winnipeg Jets story after they just got scotched by the Los Angeles Kings last night in front of essentially nobody. With all due respect to the 11,000 that did show up. With that, we'll bring in Greg Wachinski from ESPN. Hello, Wish. Hello. Uh, I
1: was unaware the Canadian teams on. had attendance problems. We got your...
0: <laughs> I know, right? I mean, this is this is your chance, quote unquote, small market, non-traditional <laughs> U.S. markets. This is your chance to play whack a mole with uh, with a couple of Canadian markets, uh, most specifically uh, the Winnipeg just But what it what it does sort of uh, uh, undercut or, or or point at or wink to is the idea that this is why, in a lot of markets, owners are terrified of rebuilds or terrified of teams not being good.
1: Wait, why are they terrified? Because the the available evidence to us is that that the Winnipeg Jets, who have had the same GM for their entire existence, uh, have been treading water for the last couple of seasons and who keep losing players, like Pierre-Luc Dubois, who came back last night, um, like they're doing that and, and, and losing fans and, and not filling the building. Mm-hmm. Um, so wouldn't the argument then be to tank restart, hope that there's, you know, a Bedard at the top of the draft yep. and then, you, and then, and now you don't have to worry about treading water and pulling 11,000 for a game, uh, on a, on a Wednesday, uh, Tuesday in October.
0: The problem is a lot of owners, as you well know, don't want to go through that financial pain. Like there are some markets where you can go through a rebuild. And we'll see what ultimately ends up hearing, happening here with the Philadelphia Flyers. But this is year one of a very substantial burn-it-down rebuild. Mm-hmm. And the attendance yesterday was pretty remarkable considering A, it's rebuild, and B, it's a Phillies night, 18000 yeah. Right, yeah. Last night for the Philadelphia Flyers against the Vancouver. Now, Philly's a great sports market. We all know about that. I think it was a friendly as well, soccer friendly that day, or that night rather, to compete with as well. That whole area was flooded. But nonetheless, um, owners in certain markets, like I always say it this way fans who really don't have, you know, skin in the game other than it's their money and their emotions, uh, which is pretty significant. Will tell you that, you know, uh, we want to rebuild, the team's not going anywhere, it's on a it's on a downturn, tear it down, rebuild it up, and let's get back into the playoffs here. The follow-up question, Greg, should always be okay, but if we do that, will you still buy a ticket? Right. Like that question never gets asked of fans that bark about tearing it down and, and rebuilding. And all I'm saying is for a market like Winnipeg, and I think as far as as far as tough GM jobs in the NHL, shovel day off may have the toughest for a lot of those reasons that you mentioned um you know there's uh they pay their costs they pay their players in US funds and all the obviously all the money coming in is in Canadian funds as well and now we are seeing 11,000 people in the stands and they pan to the crowd and there's a whole lot of empty seats in Winnipeg as well like that really stings Day Dayoff, you could argue has the toughest gig it's tough to lure players it's tough to keep players you have to mm. overpay in a lot of situations see Shifley Halalbuck etc you can make the argument that as much as you might want to criticize Kevin Chevel Dayoff, he may have the toughest GM job in the league.
1: Well, I mean, as you as you said, they just kept two. And whether or not you think they had to overpay is in the eye of the beholder. I, I happen to think Shifley could get return. more. Well, yeah, term. Uh, well, term in, in the case of Hellebuck, because he wasn't going to find that term on the open market. But that nonetheless, I mean, from a financial situation, I think I think Shifley could have done better as a UFA than he did in Winnipeg. Here here's the difference. And and you know, we could talk about tearing it down and rebuilds and and um, you know whether fans agree to still buy tickets during the painful times and, and all this stuff. But the the difference is this between, say, like Philly and Winnipeg. Philly has direction. Like Philly has done a really, really good job. I have a story about this coming out later later this month. We've done a really good job with marketing this quote-unquote new era of Flyers hockey with Keith Jones coming back, mm-hmm. with Briere being the GM. They don't have the tippy-top blue-chip prospect, I mean, the Russian kid notwithstanding, that you, uh, you kind of, like, market around. Maybe. Well, well, it, but, but like, like, they don't have somebody that you could put on the side of the building right now. You know what I mean? So, like, mm-hmm. that's the difference between, say, what they're doing and what Chicago's doing. But what they're doing is telling fans, look, it's all headed towards something here. And we know that, you know, it's not going to be great, (laughs) but hang with us and we'll get there. Winnipeg, what are they selling to their fans? What is is the the thesis statement for the Winnipeg Jets right now? Because if you're a Flyers fan, you know you're going to see some young players, some competitive hockey because Tortorella is the coach. And maybe some good games here and there, and eventually they'll get better. What is the so, thesis statement for the Winnipeg Jets right now?
0: This, this this is this is really this is a really interesting road you've taken us down because what this conversation takes us to is what makes a great sports fan. Is it the fan that shows up when the team is winning, or the fan that shows up through thick and thin? You know, on the one hand. We'll hear traditionally a lot of markets say, you know, we demand excellence. We will only pay. This is how we keep our team accountable. Whereas other people will say, hold on a second here. Your team's going to have a downturn. Like no one stays on top forever. There's going to be times where it's going to be in the doldrums for a couple of seasons. If you're a real sports fan, you stick with them and you keep buying tickets and you keep going. Aren't we going down the what is a real sports fan or in this case, what is a real hockey fan? because right now with the Winnipeg Jets and I understand hang on the, I understand the the economics of this as well and a lot of Winnipeg Jets fans maintain the ticket prices are too high and too high for a team that is nowhere near the top of their winning cycle but this is a team that you know starts to pile up some losses Playoffs are, you know, are, are a question mark, and they're seeing that reflected at the turnstiles. And this is still very much a butts in the seats type operation for all 32 markets. So I think what it gets at is, what's a what's a great hockey fan? Is it someone that just shows up when they're winning, or shows up all the time? What do you think?
1: Well, I think first of all, we should preface this by saying that it's always an uncomfortable conversation. When uh sports media starts talking about attendance, because the vast majority of sports media hasn't bought a ticket to a hockey game maybe in the last fifteen years, i I take my family at least twice every year to a devil's game, so I have a good sense at least of mm-hmm. what it costs and <laughs> and you know what parking is, what tickets are, what what the food is. like I, I not only want to go enjoy the game with my kid, but I also want to understand the economics of it. So when you ask like what's a good sports fan or what's a good hockey fan? I think a good hockey fan is someone who will still pay to watch games during a rebuild, but 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 I don't think that they should be penalized for, say, not getting season tickets during a rebuild. Do you know what I mean? Like I, I think a, a mm-hmm. downcycling of your commitment to a team during what you know are going to be the doldrums is is your right and your want, uh, especially considering you know the inflationary economy that we're in right now. So. I don't know. I, I, it always gives me a little bit of the oogies when when we start talking about fan commitment and what's a real fan when we're, when we're talking about a family of four going to a hockey game and it costing you know like half a grand to to, to pull that off.
0: Yeah. The um the the thing about Chevel day off is here. Um, I don't know that. He has, and everybody has an owner. And one of the things we keep hearing about is, you know, the ability for managers now to manage upwards is the most valuable skill any, any, any general manager can have. I don't know that all of Dayoff's decisions are strictly his own. Now, I know that that rings true for all general managers, but when it comes to, like, this year's edition of the Winnipeg Jets, for example, or the two most recent signings, Shifley and Hellebuck, I don't know whether that is exclusively like exclusively Kevin Chevel Dayoff's decision, as much as it might be true North Sports and Entertainment saying, We're soft at the turnstiles here. We need to be competitive, get these deals done. So it might not even be the manager who's responsible for it. Like, again, this is where I go back to. Shevel Dayoff has maybe the most difficult job of any general manager in the NHL. It's a really sensitive market. And we're seeing it play out right now. The wins aren't there. The superstars aren't there. Players have left the team. Some have just retired. Like, Dustin Bufflin just said, now I'm gone fishing. (laughs) <laughs> right pierre Luc dubois says peace out i'm going to los angeles and <laughs> essentially you know i'm gonna do uh i do an interview with the athletic right essentially say i wanted to go to la because i wanted to go to la and, and that's it you want to criticize me go ahead it's my it's my life it gets tough man like shovel has a really really tough gig here he, he the dubois thing is so
1: stupid like it's, it's 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 expecting people to change their stripes, <laughs> right? Like, like the, he already asked out of one place, and then and then he asked out of another yep. place, and, and any of us were supposed to be surprised by it. I, I always I, I didn't never quite understood the the whole thing with him. And the athletic piece was good, but didn't really reveal all that much. I didn't feel. Um, I don't know. I I I think what you're doing, dude, is you are giving the uh which maloney was in uh was in arizona was it dave or don don maloney don maloney i think you're giving chevdel day off the don maloney rub in the sense that don maloney was always put up a, on a pedestal because he was always seen as doing more with less and um i kind of feel like chevdel day off gets the same pass look the team's been competitive it's been good but I think it should have been better based on the core that they had, don't you?
0: Oh, 100%. There should have been a couple of Stanley Cup appearances there, and they may have they they, they probably should have won one of them.
1: Yeah. But I, I think the only thing the only thing the only thing I really I really the only thing I really fall, I, I give him a break for besides obviously the limitations of the market is like you said when the defense got nuked. Like that that's something that he couldn't see coming. And uh, and and it was tough when you lose like half your blue line, um, the way that he did that one year. That was a, that was a real a real kick in the teeth. But I don't know. Like when I, when I think of shovel day off, when I think of the Jets, I, I always think of of those general managers that that get overly lauded because they're seen as doing more with less. Um, but the more is never actually enough. <laughs> so, but but nonetheless, none, he's been. Merrick he's been there the entire run of the franchise like and maybe maybe this is this is Mm -hmm. maybe it's it's maybe this is triggering my Dave Poyle trigger where you know we spent uh, the last the last uh, two years lauding Dave Poyle for winning a bunch of regular season games and and never having done anything of consequence beyond that in the National Hockey League like again I like the guy he's always been nice to me but we got to be honest with ourselves about some of these guys. Like David Poyle's greatest attribute was not getting fired. And, and maybe that's your managing up part of it. But, I mean, that's, that's why one of those games, he found a way not to get fired. Um, but he never mm. won a cup. And, and maybe Dayoff is the same way. Like maybe, maybe the virtue of, of Kevin Dayoff right now is finding a way not to get
0: fired. Who, um, who then – okay, let me throw this one back at you then. Who then impresses you as a general manager, knowing full well, knowing full well that the general manager position in the NHL ain't what it used to be? Um, there's answering to presidents. There's answering to owners who are now more hands-on than ever. It is a multi-capped um, NHL right now. There's a very tight CBA albeit it's one that everybody has to swim in. Everyone swims in the same CBA waters here, folks. Who impresses you as a general manager?
1: Well, there's a few front offices that impress me. Like, obviously, Carolina's front office impresses me and and Colorado's front office impresses me. And the same thing with Tampa uh, until maybe recently. Uh, Jim Nill, I think, does a really, really good job in Dallas. Um, Not only with with who, who he acquires, but you know, knowing where the pieces should fit and, and knowing what pieces to jettison that he that he could afford to jettison. Um I think he does a really good job. I thought Jeff Gorton did a really good job in, in New York, um, before he moved on to Montreal. Mm-hmm. I thought he got a raw deal with the Rangers. I thought that he did a he did a very good job there. And, and you know the question was always like how much of that was Sam and how much of that was was Drury. And now that Drury's taken over, I tend to believe it's more Gorton, <laughs> if we're being honest. Um <laughs> But those are those are two off the top of my head that, that I think do a, do a pretty good job. A few off the top of my head that I think do a pretty good job. What about you? Who's, who's, who's the GM you're starting a team tomorrow that you pick to run, run no. the shop? Oh, Rob no. Blake, too. No. I, sh- I want no. no. a sh- a no. to give a shout-out to no. Rob No's Blake, too.
0: I like, I like what Rob Blake has done with his forwards. I don't like – I'm not a big fan of a lot of the, uh, a lot of the prospects – that the Los Angeles Kings have. And I think that they kind of feel the same way. Like there's a lot of players in that pipeline that you say to yourself, uh, okay, it's time now. We need to see something. Uh, yeah. I know that's going to be reality for every team, but we talked a lot about oh, all these players that the Los Angeles Kings are uh, are putting in the pipeline. I think for Blake, um, I'm going to hold out judgment for this season until I see what they do in nets. Until we see what happens because I have a really, really hard time believing that if this team is going to make and do anything in the playoffs, uh, Phoenix Copley and Cam Talbot are going to be the guys Now Cam Talbot had a really good game last night. Cam Talbot looked excellent against the Winnipeg Jets last night, but i'm going'm gonna, going gonna, I'm gonna hold out uh, I'm going to hold out flowers here until we see what happens with the net minding.
1: yeah, big fan of big fan of Cam Talbot last night, keeping the score under six and a half. Um, for personal reasons. <laughs> so, uh, no. I, well, I, I, does this mean that you don't believe? <laughs> does this mean that you don't believe in the Golden Knights formula of average to mediocre goaltending behind an incredibly stout, great team can win the cup? Because that's kind of like what Blake told me—that this there, is sort of the philosophy of the season.
0: There's one of there's one of two ways you can do it, right? It's funny too because this played this played itself out yes, uh, last season in, this, in the Stanley Cup Final. Um, on the one hand, you had Aiden Hill. On the other hand, you had Sergei Bobrovsky. A lot of what the Florida Panthers were able to achieve was because of Sergei Bobrovsky. A lot of what Vegas was able to achieve was because of the blue line. Mm -hmm. Like, it's a blessing if you have both. Understandable. Like, if you can have both, like that 2007 Anaheim Ducks team with Hall of Famers (laughs) on the back end, um, plus a really elite-level netminder, okay. But you have to have one or the other. Right. So you look at Vegas. I mean, to me the story of Vegas is we always used to believe in draft and develop and that's the only way you're successful. <laughs> Flat tire to that. No chance. How many drafted how many drafted players are on the, on the on the on the like Nick Hague, Right? Like that's it. Like who else has been drafted and is on that team? Like nobody. Right. So right. anyone who says the only way to win a Stanley Cup is to draft and develop, I'll look at the Vegas Golden Knights and they've been in the playoffs every year in their existence except for one, and that was because of injury. But to your original point, you have to have one or the other. Like Vegas's blue line was and is elite. Yeah, and big I mean they're rolling and out Zach Whitecloud and, and, on their third pairing. Like they're great. Yeah, they're really right. Good. You know, it's like. I think t- Tom Watt used to have the line. You'll love this one, Wish. Tom Watt used to talk about what he wanted his blue line to be, and it kind of looks like the Vegas blue line. He described it like this, virile, agile, hostile, dancing bears. <laughs> wow. That's All what right. he wanted his blue line to be. <laughs> virile, agile, hostile, dancing bears. That's my blue wow. line. And virile. I look at Vegas, I'm like, yeah, that's kind of that back end. It's kind of that back end. But mm-hmm. I
1: think Vegas, I think virile. Yeah. And and your point's taken, your point's taken about the Kings, which is that they probably don't have, they probably have as deep a team as Vegas has up front in some ways, especially up the, up the gut, but their blue line is not nearly sufficient enough to compare to that of the Vegas Golden Knights. Um, You know, the rookies thing you said is interesting because like, you know, he's kind of, Blake has kind of followed that Dean Lombardi mentality of like, you don't start trading your prospects until you know you're, you're, you're right there. You know, the, 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 the swing he made with Dubois is very much yep. reminiscent of, like, the Richards and Carter trades for Dean Lombardi. Like, you don't start cutting, cutting ties with your prospects until you know you're right there on the, on the precipice of maybe winning. But that being said, like, did he hang on too long to a guy like Turcotte, for example? You know, um who who may not become the player we thought he was. It really is going to come down to like what Byfield ends up being and what Brent Clark ends up being, isn't it? For this this group, this crop of prospects that we've lauded for years, with the Kings were like, oh my god, the Kings like top three prospect yeah. pool. And then at the end of the day, like how many of these guys have really hit?
0: Mm-hmm. Do Do you not think though that if they're going to bring in again, let's get ahead of ourselves here. If they're going to bring in a high-level netminder, okay? Mm-hmm. And let's just say for sake of argument, because the whispers were all out there last season, let's say that netminder is Carter Hart. Do you not think the first person, the first prospect, that the Philadelphia Flyers, Daniel Briere, Keith Jones, you're going to ask for is Brant Clark?
1: Yeah, without question. And, and, and that's why I probably don't make that trade if I'm Rob Blake. <laughs> like I think, I think Clark's going to be a really good player. Now, would you, do, would you do Byfield for Carter Hart straight up?
0: You see, I'm of the mind. I'll, I'll reference another, another great general manager. For me, the second best general manager of all time right after Bill Torrey, and that is Sam Pollock, who would always talk about don't trade a young player until you're 100% sure. Mm-hmm. If you're 99% sure, don't make the trade. It's only if you're 100% sure. I, with that size and skill and potential, now, I don't know that he's ever going to achieve that potential playing in Los Angeles when you look down the middle and you're not going to find a spot for Quinton Byfield and he's a natural center, but he does look really good on the wing playing with Kopitar. He looks good playing on the wing with Kopitar, but I don't know that he's going to be able to achieve what he could as long as he's playing behind... Those three centers, but even even having said that, I don't know, man. I would Boy. be really, really hesitate hesitant to trade Quentin Byfield. Really, you, put, you talk about to trade Quentin Byfield. The
1: poster on the outside of the arena, though, in Philly, Quentin Byfield. It's not 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 a bad flag to plant for your franchise. Yeah. Right
0: there. No, I get it. I, I understand it, and he would be given a much greater opportunity in Philadelphia at his natural position uh, than he would with the Los Angeles Kings. But nonetheless, oh, speaking of um, <laughs> the Kings and the Knights, and I want to drag Columbus back into this because I'm sure you you must have loved this. What hmm. did you make of? I'm going to go back to Sunday on this one, the uh, the tribute video for Jonathan Quick at Nationwide <laughs> for his one I loved day. It but the, the right rival only would be like i would have loved if they did if tampa did one for sam gagne who was a tampa bay lightning for one hour before he was moved to arizona and you know the question becomes hey sam how come i never worked out in tampa i loved what they did with quick i don't know who put it together but that should be corner office raise right there for that person and good on quick yeah. for playing along with it for playing along
1: yeah i mean that's that's part of it too like he played along and and it was brilliant. I I've seen a couple of those through the years of guys that were just involved in in uh you know three-way trades that were there for a, a minute or, or didn't play. But that one in particular was really yeah. clever and uh I really dug it. That was really funny. It's good good to see the Blue Olaf Jackets I love Cole's a sense against of Toronto after All of against Toronto. Yeah,
0: exactly. Exactly. Um I want to ask you about an un, what I think is probably going to be a. Uh, I, I always come shy of saying unbeatable, but here we go. An unbeatable record. Okay, so last night, Marc Andre Fleury in Montreal. He's the first star. Mm-hmm. Um, we saw him roll the shoulders. That was kind of cool. Um, it's Marc Andre Fleury in Montreal. And there's a couple of dozen family and friends in attendance here, believed to be his last game in Montreal. Even though he wouldn't confirm it or talk about it, uh, we all know what the score is here. 27 saves, his 545th career win. So he trails Patrick Waugh by six. Patrick Waugh is in second place, 551. He's six away from being second overall in the history of the NHL. Number one is Marty Bordeaux with 691. (laughs) (laughs) Is that... Is that an un, given the, the shelf life of goaltenders, uh, and given how goalies play and how their bodies break down and what happens to the hips and what happens to the knees, uh, and how goaltenders now aren't playing a lot of games per season because they need to you know manage their rest if they're going to have anything left for the playoffs, is that as unbeatable? I don't think of Glenn Hall consecutive games though. Is that an unbeatable record? Marty Berdura six hundred ninety one wins.
1: Yeah, it's funny. I'm looking at Brodor's stat line here on the leaderboard on Hockey Insane. Reference, and to see under years <laughs> 1991 to 15, like that, this just it's mind blowing, yeah. isn't it? Mind blowing. How many yeah. Star Wars movies came out during his tenure as a goalie? Um, yeah, that's that's a I, I you know, when I think of Unbra- unbreakable Brodor records, I think of the shutouts probably being chief among them, just because of how. The game has changed, and uh, I don't think we're ever going to get back into a mode where someone is collecting shutouts at the rate in which Brodor did. Yeah. Um, it's a shootout. But the, win- game. the, win- the wins game. record might be up there, too. I mean, again, like I think part of the thing that enabled him to get there was bridging the generations between ties and shootouts, which is something he obviously did, which is, I think, the primary reason he was able to move ahead of Patrick Waugh along with L- longevity. Um, But yeah, that's a that's a that's a that's a robust number, man. Like like you said, Fleury's been playing forever, (laughs) and he's at five five forty five or whatever it is, uh, and he ain't even within a country mile of Bruder right now. So you might be right. Those might be two. No, that and the shutout record might be the two that we we'll just never see broken for Marty.
0: You know, Flurry's. Fleury's, you know, obviously winding this thing down and, and yesterday was one of those okay, check the boxes his last time in Montreal. Unless you want to go ahead on record here and predict a, a Minnesota Montreal final. I'll just pause <laughs> if you
1: want to jump
0: all over that one, You can go um,
1: I, can't, I can't in good faith. I mean you, we all know where, Minnesota's not making it, so <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> but Montreal's got a great chat, although Kirby Dodd sets a really set, set match. I mean, if the, if the, got, if the Lightning do make the playoffs, it's really anybody's sentence. division. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, you th- I mean, listen, you covered so much of his career, and we've all followed Marc-Andre Fleury forever. Um, do you have a thought on, like, I don't want to ask you, like, memories of Marc-Andre Fleury here, but, you know, we know what's happening with, with Flower this season. Do um, you have a thought about his position in the game? like I know it started great, but didn't end well uh, with the Vegas Golden Knights. Um, I know it started great and didn't end well with the Pittsburgh Penguins at all uh, with him and uh, and Jim Rutherford, but do you have a, a, a sense or a, a feeling, a thought, anything about Marc-Andre Fleury and his position in the NHL since he was selected first overall, Greg Wasinski, first overall? It's three things, and you covered a little bit of it. First of all, it's
1: the the idea that he was so disregarded I guess by a couple of his employers um in two with two teams that at one point really valued him and cherished him to have it end the way it did in both cases was still kind of stunning when you think about it and I think one of the great what-ifs in hockey is whether the Penguins bet right on that one um the second mm-hmm. thing is that we, we referenced again the, the poster on the side of the building. Like, Marc Andre Fleury was a very, very big reason why the Vegas Golden Knights hit the way they did in that market. Like, he was a star. He, he was the, the name. He was the guy. He was the mask. He was the guy in the community. Like, he was somebody that you go to a Vegas Golden Knights game now and you still see people walking around with Fleury jerseys. Like, he was a very big factor in them taking over that market as quickly as they did. And the third thing is, is he... about the guy. Okay. Oh, go ahead. Sure. I was going to say the third thing is just no, about I, the I guy gonna, himself, I'll, which I'll, is I'll, that no, he on. is you a go. smiley. He's, he, there's no there's, I don't think there's a bigger juxtaposition for any player in this league between the aw shucks, happy-go-lucky person that you speak to in the dressing room and the absolute... Bulldog of a competitor. Like I, I, I remember talking to Crosby about that once, just about the idea of like how nice Flurry is and how jovial he is and, and what a wonderful guy he is. Yeah. And then he's the guy who also becomes absolutely infuriated if you get one by him in practice. Like like that juxtaposition is yeah. the thing that I'll always remember about Flurry too.
0: And really wanted to see him square off with Bennington last year. Like he really wanted that fight. That's oh, one of the God, great disappointments right? of the last season, like when he was held back. And he's like, look, no, 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 this guy wants it. Let's just do this. Let's just do this. So here, here becomes the question. Mm-hmm. And I know that there is, and take no offense by this Pittsburgh Penguins fans, but you no don't boy. exactly have a long legacy at this position going back to the Les Binkley days, whom I love, by the way, of, of 1967. Is he or is Tom Barrasso the greatest Pittsburgh Penguins goaltender of all time. Oh, boy. See, I, I take Flurry in that fight. I take Flurry over Barrasso in that fight.
1: I think I do, too. I think I do, too. I, I think he's a having seen both, which is kind of remarkable. Uh, I will. I'll take Flurry in that one. I think he's a better goalie.
0: Yeah, I, I, uh, and then the other question that now do you take is, do you, you take
1: uh, await? Do you take Ken Reggett or Matt Murray? <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, I did love Ken Reggett. but then Matt
1: <laughs> Murray who didn't, up, who didn't? like Ken uh, Reggett? Uh,
0: Kenny Reggett, baby. Ken Reggett was was. You know what Ken? You know what Ken? You know what I always think about with Ken Reggett? Yeah, there, there was. You'll you'll remember this because we're the same vintage. Do you remember that New York Rangers game? This is mid '90s, where him and Wendell Young changed on the fly. Oh, I do remember that. Yeah, that's one of the things that I'll always think about with with Ken Reggett. Him and Wendell Young because they had talked about it for they had talked about it for a while. Um, Scott Bowman uh, used to do that. And I can't remember whose idea. It might have been Wendell Young's idea to try it. And Ken Raggett, who now owns a restaurant in Pittsburgh. um, They both went along. This is, is, oh man, this is so long ago. Yeah, that's going to be one of the things that I remember from Raggett. And the other thing that I'll always remember from Raggett is he made the best glove save I've ever seen in my life. It was a Toronto Maple Leafs St. Louis Blues playoff game. Might have been opening round. The vaunted Norris division. And he made a glove save on Gino Cavallini, the, likes of, Gino the Cavallini. likes of which I've never seen since. I had never seen before, and I have never seen since. This one's available on YouTube. You can, you can check it out. Just Gino Cavallini, Ken Reggett. Is... Um, but that's the, the, those are the things that I'll remember from, from Ken
1: Reggett. This is high quality, remembering some guys. If we can go Ken Reggett and Gino Cavallini <laughs> in the same show... <laughs> we are doing our we're yeah, doing man. our jobs well.
0: <laughs> okay, let's let's get let's get it back let's get it back to to 2023. Um okay. we'll end on this one. Leon Draisaitl. Yeah. Leon Draisaitl who absolutely is going to liquefy and already has begun the Edmonton Oilers the Edmonton Oilers power play franchise record for goals. He's at 128. So Ryan Smith and Glenn Anderson at 126. That's obliterated, and the obligatory. And he didn't need a five-minute shift to get there, like Ryan Smith. Those who know get that joke, (laughs) but it's true. Uh, You have a thought on on Leon Dreisaitl here with the Edmonton Oilers, who, by the way, just continues to haunt Nashville. Like I don't, Leon's great, but I don't know this team that he haunts (laughs) like a ghost. Uh, quite like the national predators your thought your thoughts on Dreisidel.
1: yeah he somehow ranked behind jack hughes on our nhl ranking this week on espn which i don't quite know how that happened
0: well you know Uh, know, i had rob rossi on before and he said he had a couple of questions about it uh, about the list but he's going to hold on to yeah you know yins Yin's know that gino should have been
1: number two on that list right i know rob i get it wow that's a pretty good rossi holy smokes Thank you. I, listen, I do, as you know, I do like nine impressions and Rossi's one of them. Uh, I was actually, sorry, I was I was going through the stats. Like Gretzky had 125 power play goals for the, the Oilers in, in, in more games than Drysaddle's played. And Drysaddle has already surpassed him. That's wild. Because when you were going into that spiel about no, dry this... sudden power play goals, I thought you were going to say, he passed Glenn Anderson, he passed Ryan passed Smith. Of course, he's 400 behind Gretzky, but he might get there eventually. But no, he's <laughs> already he's already passed Gretzky. No. That's crazy.
0: No, that's it. Yeah, I know. It, he's uh, passed all these dudes too. No, this Oilers, this Oilers power play, uh, over the past few seasons uh, has just has, has been otherworldly. Like it's one of those things where I don't know that we appreciate it at this time right now, but 10 years from now we're going to look back at the Oilers' power play over like remember like that 5 or 6 year run where the Oilers melted everybody on their power play? Oh, I don't yeah. think we're appreciating it fully right now cuz we're in the middle of it, but we're going to look back and go, "Holy smokes that." Like just like you did with the Berdura record for wins. Like, "Oh wow, look at that. Look at that. A 691. Holy smokes, he melted the field."
1: Yeah, so they're they're cooking right now at, uh, you know, a 35% clip, which, you know, it's funny. Like, the teams are trailing are both at 40%, and there's a very good chance that, like, the Oilers will finish at 40%. Like, at some point, in the season is just—they're so good on <laughs> the power play. And the thought was that they were going to even be yeah. better on the power play this year because they've handed the keys over to Bouchard um, yeah. to, to help run the point. Shooting threat, it's, yeah, so, like, it, it's it's scary that they might even be better than they've been in recent years. Um, no, he's just a super special player. And uh, I, you know, I've often wondered what it would look like if he wasn't on the Oilers, like, what his career would look like, you know, what his numbers would look like, not having Connor feeding him pucks on the power play. Um, but I also hope we never find out. I would like those guys to just kind of stay together, like, in a Taves yeah. and Kane way throughout their career, um, which is a weird thing to say because I was always sort of very let's liberate Connor from Edmonton. But I don't know, the more I think about it, the more I like the idea of, of Connor and Leon kind of being a package deal uh, in, the, in perpetuity for their
0: career. They're so great like really like they're so they're 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 phenomenal together it's must, must you remember for the longest time like whenever a game went into a shootout every hockey twitter account had like an essentially an online alarm bell like hey there's a shootout here like right away let's throw a a uh uh 3 on 3 overtime here let's uh, let's let's all you know flip channels and and get over there that's like the oldest power play or Connor and Leon on 3 on 3 which is as close to automatic as, yeah. as you're going to the find Connor and
1: Leon 3 on 3 thing like it own- is its own siren, its own that yeah. signal when he when they would go on three on three. Um, you know, speaking of the shootout, like th- all thanks the things for things
0: not- that are as close to automatic.
1: They're they're automatic on three on three. I was going to say, thank uh, speaking of the shootout, thanks for not uh, asking me to uh, litigate the Kuznetsov attempt, which, like,
0: why sh- I love it.
1: Shoot- shootout attempts that we don't agree with morally are are like uh talking about the dallas cowboys on sports talk radio it's like the laziest easiest thing that you can do to try to generate heat um i might have been guilty of it at some point but i just don't Uh, care anymore it's different when you're talking about the illegalities of things like when we had spin gate a few years ago but like the idea that uh, that anyone should take issue with a completely legal play just because kuznetsov skates at his own pace is again like if you see someone doing it they're doing it for, for cheap heat. They're doing it for a reason. They're looking on the back of the guitar and seeing K- the, the town's name before they go into a solo. Yep.
0: Yeah. <laughs> it's McFoley, hometown pop. You know what I love best about the Kuznetsov slow burn to the net? You know what I might love the most about that? It's not actually him skating like he's me on a penalty shot in men's <laughs> league because that's about my speed. <laughs> But um, (laughs) what I love about it is he approaches the puck at center fast. Like, he takes, like, a bunch of hard strides and then stops. Right. (laughs) I find that endlessly funny, Greg. Like, he'll he'll start at the far blue line, wind up, take, like, a few really hard, like, he's gathering up speed and then stops at the dot. It's like a pitcher going in his full slow.
1: rotation to then throw a sixty mile per hour pitch. Like it's it's beautiful,
0: it's I fantastic. I just love it. Yeah. Uh, I just love it. I hope they listen. I hope Washington Ottawa goes to Shido tonight, just so we can see it again, and watch people online and the live market just go apoplectic you. because he's not supposed to be going slow.
1: You absolutely Why? should never hope that any game goes to a shootout. Let's just get this out of the way. Shootouts suck. They continue to suck. We need an alternative of some sort. Um, <laughs> and I, and, yeah, and I, uh, you know this. You know this from the moment that they they, they put it in. Like I hated it. Um, yeah. But again, like they've been they've been diminished at the very least because of three on three. So I guess we could be happy about that.
0: They have. Um, and we are diminished and out of time. We have diminished our clock. Uh, oh. You be good. We'll talk in seven days. Uh, enjoy taking bullets uh, for various pieces on the website. Um, our podcast, well. We'll the, drop
1: will, the Drop, will cover the Evgeny Malkin snub on tomorrow's episode. Um, mea culpa, yada, yada, yada.
0: <laughs> Look forward to that. Say hi to Arda for me. I shall. Be good. Uh, the great Greg Wyszynski from ESPN. Uh, you can listen to The Drop, very much worth your time. Uh, and you can uh, follow Greg on Twitter. He loves engaging. And by that, I mean he loves fighting on hockey Twitter. And we love it. We'll hit a break, uh, wrap up the American experience here in a couple of moments across the Sportsnet Radio Network simulcast on Sportsnet 360.